scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms 119, verses 33 to 48. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my ear to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give my life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Hate it. Well, I'll uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 is what we're looking at today, the third commandment, to not take the Lord's name in vain. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It'll be up on the screen here uh, in just a moment. Well, I don't remember exactly how old I was when this happened. I was, it had to be late middle school, early high school, probably early high school, because I was a little bit of a, of a late bloomer anyway, because my, in my memory, I was about a head taller than my mom in this exchange that was going on. Now, my mom was five foot three, so it didn't take much to be a head taller than her, but I'm there, and I'm sitting in the half bath of our, our house on the downstairs level. We had a half bathroom, and we're in there, and she is looking at me with this look that I can only imagine is coming directly from her Air Force military background. She's got one hand on her hip, and the other, she has the, the soap, the hand soap with a big old pump on it. You see, what had led to this moment as I looked, staring at my mom, her glaring at me, my jaw at the ground, not really comprehending what is getting ready to happen. I'm not really sure. I'm like too old for this kind of thing to be going on. But what had happened previously is somewhere in my teenage angst, for some silly reason, I am sure, I had said, oh, G-O-D. But I didn't say G-O-D. I said it. And she had warned me. And she had warned me to stop taking the Lord's name in vain. And here we are in this small bathroom. And she is glaring at me, hand soap in one hand, arm on her hip in the other. And she says, open your mouth. And I am like, what? I'm a head taller than her at this point. I can just like walk out if I need to. I'm like now wrestling through. I've broken the third command. Should I break the fifth one? Like, is this going to be worth it? But I know that my dad is, he's still bigger than me. And I know if if she calls in backup, it's going to be bad. And so reluctantly and confused, I, I do it. She says, stick out your tongue. And I do it. And the whole thing hits my tongue, mouth. Now shut your mouth. And I do it. I shut my mouth. And I'm there. And I take it, and she walks out and tells me to quit taking the Lord's name in vain. <laughs> and I run to the sink, and I open my mouth, and I'm spitting suds for the next 10, 15 minutes. Now, I don't know that I would repeat the same scenario with my own kids today. I'm not sure that that's godly, loving parenting. 
But what's so interesting about my mom's story and in that moment is my mom did not grow up like you might think she grew up from hearing that story. You might think she came from some kind of really fundamentalist, legalistic background. But the reality is, is my mom grew up probably hearing the Lord's name only taken in vain her whole life. My mom's life and experience was, it was normal to say words that in our culture are a lot worse than just the three-letter one, but they said the four-letter ones all the time. What has happened in this woman's life that all of a sudden she is filled with zeal for the name of God? And again, I don't know that that that's the right thing to do or not, but the reality was, as the name of God becomes so precious in her life that she would defend it even against her own son. You see, what happened when my mom was about 28 years old, Jesus saved her from her sin. He saved her from a life of bitterness and unforgiveness. And he changed her forever. She came to know the one true God as her God. She became passionate about his name and his glory. And again, while I don't know that I'm suggesting that any of you take your kids into the bathroom this weekend and squirt soap on their tongue, I would say I think we could maybe learn something from her zeal and her love of the Lord, to want to defend his name, to want to, to hold high the name of the God, that she didn't want to hear her son take the Lord's name in vain. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 reads this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord, and apparently Tammy Rosentretter, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. See, my hope is as we walk through these, these commands of God that we would learn to delight in his commandments. As we look at a command that's maybe we're lost on it because names aren't used the same way they're used here in the, in the text and what that all looks like and what that means. And we sometimes may think, is it really that big of a deal to, to use the Lord's name and empty of it of meaning and just take it in vain or not? My hope is that we would resonate with the psalmist as we've been reading through Psalm 119 for our scripture reading throughout this series. Psalm 119 verse 14 says this, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. My hope is today uh, I'm going to attack the text a little differently than we're used to. I'm going to teach the whole text because it's just one verse today. We're going to teach the whole thing first and then I want to give four kind of applications, just four areas of your life that I believe can be enriched, can be better if you would see what it looks like to not take the Lord's name in vain. If you would see what does it look like to, instead of taking his name in vain, to honor the name of God in a right way, could it make life better? Could it make life more rich and more full? And I believe the answer to that is yes. And I want to give four particular areas that I think, and that's not to be exhaustive. I just want to be practical at the end. But first, what I want to do is walk through Exodus 20, verse 7. And I'll read it again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, as we walk through this verse together, we need to answer some questions. We need to kind of look at some just pieces of the verse so we can understand it holistically and try to see what, what is being taught here to God's people as God gives them these Ten Commands. 
And first, it requires us to understand what a name means in this context. That it's not just a label. We're not treating the name of God like it's some kind of uh, magic word or something that we can just like say as if it's like a spell or something strange like this. But the name of God means to carry with him the reputation of God. The very character and nature of who God is. That's what it means when he talks about his name in this context and in this world that the Israelites are part of, this Near East ancient culture. Your name meant like who you really are. And while that maybe isn't the exact same in a Western culture, I don't know that we've totally lost that either. You can think of things like when you have maybe suggested somebody for a job or a promotion in your professional life. You connect your name to that person. That's why there's sometimes some fear and some trepidation of, uh, is that really the good and right thing to do, right? If you're really afraid, like if I put my neck out there and I put my name on this person and they fail to perform well, that's going to reflect badly on me. That's going to empty out and that's going to make my name not look as good if I ever try to vouch for somebody else. We see that in our world because in our world, when you put your name, especially in the professional world, on somebody else, you're saying they have a work ethic like me. They have a desire to succeed like I do. They have skills that are like my skills. And I'm saying this person is going to be successful. And that only matters. That only carries any weight if you're successful, right? If someone, if one of your employees came to you who's a terrible employee and they said, hey, hire my friend, you'd be like, no, you know, I already got one of you. I know what to, right? We would all think that. We've all, I've been a supervisor before. I've had that experience. But I've also had the opposite. When someone's a hard worker and they do a great job and they say, hey, my friend is interested in a job, your assumption is, hey, hopefully, if they're willing to put their neck out, this person's going to perform well. And we see that that's what happens. And that's what we're saying. That's one example of what it looks like to have a name. It's carrying the reputation of God, the character of God, the work of God that he has done in this world. And for our sake is what we do. We carry the name of God into something. When we invoke his name or want to say it. And what happens in that scenario when that friend takes the job and they do fail? They're late to work and they're not a good employee. They empty your name of its power. They empty your reputation, your past experience, and you're not going to be able to suggest other people in quite the same way. And that's where we look at vanity. This word that gets translated in vain in Hebrew, it means to empty, to make useless or worthless. Another way uh, that it gets translated is to just misuse the name of God. The command here is we see that this is God's name. It's his reputation and his character, not just his label. It's not about the syllables. We're not even using the same ones as they were. They're saying this in Hebrew. We're saying it in English. There's lots of things that are happening. It's his character. It's his reputation. And God is saying, don't misuse my character. Don't misuse my reputation. Don't misrepresent me to the world. And for that... God promises that he will not hold any guiltless who misuse his name. His promise is that he will punish those who misuse the name of God, who break his holy law and his holy commands. They will be subject to his holy wrath and his holy judgment and his holy punishment. But that's the good news. That's the, that's the bad news the old covenant told in the Ten Commandments. But the good news that the new covenant now tells in Jesus is from Acts 4, verse 12. 
See, if you fail to keep God's name, and all of us are going to fail at that, we know that there is punishment. But Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which why we must be saved. Because if we understand name to mean reputation, to mean character, to mean the work of that person, we talk about the name of Jesus and the name of God. He is the one who lived a perfect life on your behalf. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He never broke any of these commands that we've been talking about. He lived a perfect life. And then he died on your behalf. God poured out his wrath on him so that he could still be true to his word, that he would not hold anybody guiltless. But what happens is you are found in Jesus when you believe in the name of Jesus. Now, that doesn't just mean like in the syllables of Jesus or J-E-S-U-S, like there's something about the letters. It's talking about in the name, in the character, in the reputation, and what he did in his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That when he rose from the dead, he won the right that everyone would bow, what? At the name of Jesus. And everyone's tongue would confess that he is Lord. His name is, is more than just a label. His name is who he is, his very nature and his character. See, everyone who does not believe in the name of Jesus for salvation takes the name of the Lord in vain. They empty of it of its saving power. When they say, well, if I'm just more good than I am bad, then when I stand before God, I'll be good enough, right? We would say, no, that takes the name of the Lord in vain. He's the only name that can save. He's the one. It was, it's his character, not mine, that stands before God. It's his reputation. It's his birthright. It's his death, his resurrection. That's what saves me. And that's what I must believe in. That's what we say when we believe in the name of Jesus. We're saying we're believing in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. 1 John 1.12 tells us, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So does the third command matter today? Yes. It is only by the name of Jesus that we can be saved. When we say his name, we're not just talking about the syllables. We're not just talking about a label. We're talking about his character, his work on the cross, and his work in raising from the dead. And it's in his name that we are saved. And we know that once we become a Christian, it is then our aim to glorify him in everything that we do. And so it's our aim to esteem the name, the life, the character, the reputation of Jesus, of our Lord, of the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the Bible. And when we fail to do that, we functionally make it empty. We treat it like it's useless and in vain. So that's, I think, what the passage tells us. It's, it's an invitation, like we've tried, been saying, it's the invitation to delight in the Lord law of God. It's not just don't do this. It's this invitation to say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Do the opposite. Worship his name. Worship his work and his worth. See it as being full. Honor it. And in that we can find delight and glory. And so there, what we want to see is that we can live a rich life when we honor the name of our Lord. Now obviously I'm not talking about material possessions or anything like that. I mean 
in our doing good, the life that Jesus has promised, that he would be with us and be near us, so that we would live in his ways and experience the joy that comes from following Christ. And so I want to give us four examples or four areas of life that I think can be enriched if we learn to honor the name of God. And if we bring this into these areas of life, I think your life will be more enriched, more full. You will live in gospel hope and endurance. So first one is this. It's in our speech. This is probably the most common thing we think of when we think about taking the Lord's name in vain. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This passage in Ephesians comes to us after Paul has written through the gospel extensively. He's told us that we are sinners, fallen from grace, that we cannot save ourselves, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, that his death was our death, and his resurrection is now our resurrection. And we can then live in a life that's worthy of that. That's the beginning of Ephesians 4. And then he starts giving some really practical ways, and he talks about speech. See, you as a Christian, God's plan for your speech in your life is that no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but rather only talk that is good for building up. Talk that fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. It's not just the Lord's name. It's every word that you have is meant to give grace and bless and honor. But if that's true, how much more so is that true for the name of God. Can we really say that's what we're doing when we become so angry and exasperated? We just cry out like I did as a teenager and take the Lord's name in vain. In that moment, are we giving grace to those who hear? No. We're yelling and we're using his name. And the taboo, I I tried to look it up. Like, why is it that we use the name of Jesus in a way that it it almost doesn't even make sense? Like, you just scream his name when you stub your toe. Like, if I just like, ah, Kendall, like, at home and he's not there. Like, that would be weird. That doesn't make any sense. Why, Why do we do that? And it's what I could tell the best I could get from the internet in the world is it's the taboo. It's the fact that the name of Jesus holds within it a holiness and an honor. And, and what culture does, how we kind of come up with bad words over time and how that works is if things are taboo, we say them. And so the reality is, is even if you're just doing it because you're so part of the culture, when that kind of thing happens, you're, you're playing on the taboo of misusing his name. You're not bringing grace to those who hear. You're emptying the name of God. You're, us- you're using it in a way it doesn't even make sense, right? It's, it's nonsensical. It, like, why are we even saying that? That's, that's what vanity is. You're emptying it. It's vain. It doesn't make any sense. And the third command says, don't do that to my holy name. You're meant to do more. You're not just meant to stop doing bad things. You're meant to bless. You're meant to, to give grace to those who hear, especially when you're using the name of Jesus. You're carrying his reputation into that moment. Or even worse, when we use that expression, of GD. Gosh dang, right? You know what I'm trying to say. It's like hard to preach about this without saying it. (laughs) But we say that, and we need to know God will not hold those guiltless. That means God will damn people. 
See, I think we say that, and, and I almost wonder, like, do you really mean it? Are you really that angry with somebody that you want them to be damned eternally in hell? Because that's what that means. When you say that, that, that's what it means. You really are that mad about this situation that you're saying, I want that to go to hell in a literal way. I'm so angry. I'm so, or the hard part is sometimes we do, right? We've been sinned against in such egregious ways. We've experienced tremendous amounts of pain that if we're really honest, a part of us kind of does want it. We do desire that. But the word of God says this in Romans 12, 19 through 21. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. When we find ourselves at our wit's end, and we're angry, and we're frustrated, and maybe we've been just grievously sinned against, we have to rest in the knowledge that God is just, and God is good, and he has promised that vengeance belongs to him and his alone. But in this current moment, the call for the Christian is to feed your enemy to give them something to drink, to do what is good and overcome evil by doing good. If that's the call to the New Testament Christian, I would have to say, I don't think you're doing that when you cry out, may God damn you. Because we have to know, what are we saying? We're wishing upon them hell. And God is saying, that is just not your right. There's only one being in the universe who holds the right and holiness to rightfully wield that kind of power. And it's him alone. We entrust it to him. Vengeance is his. It is not ours. We do what's right. We do what's good. And if we can do that, and if we can grow in those ways, I believe that will lead you to a more enriched life. You will not be cursing people. You will learn to forgive. You won't be embittered. You'll learn to to just entrust people unto the Lord. You'll think about your life more seriously. You'll bring Jesus. I think one of the things about the ways we take the Lord's name in vain in our speech is it allows us to compartmentalize our lives as if God isn't there in that moment when you stub your toe and you're alone. And that's just not true. See, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of it, is he is saying, I am with you wherever you go, and I will use the most mundane things of your life, like stubbing your toe, to root out my glory and honor. God is so good. He is so good. He can use things that seem totally inconsequential to do the most amazing and beautiful things in your life as you grow to catch your tongue in that moment, to put up gratitude instead of dishonor, worship instead of vanity. And as we do that, we can also see another way we need to look at how we use our words is how we make our promises. This is the second area of life that I think can be enriched. James 5.12 says, but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any, uh, under any oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, 
so that you may not fall under condemnation. Jesus says something really uh, similar in Matthew 5, uh, verses 33 to 37. It's not on the screen. We won't read them today. But, but we see that that's the teaching of the New Testament and the New Covenant. It's this idea that when Christians make promises, they don't need to swear to anything else. In Jewish tradition, they would, to, to kind of show that, like, I'm a truth teller, they would swear to something else. And so they would swear maybe, like, on an altar, but then it kind of became dicey. Like, ah, should we swear on the altar? No, we'll just swear on the food that gets put on the altar. And Jesus says, no, none of that stuff. Just tell the truth. Be somebody who tells the truth. Keep your promises, and you won't need to swear to anything else. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. See, this thing when we're sitting there, and a lot of times it happens to, to most of us, it happens to me probably most often, where I'm telling a funny story, and, and I just think it's unbelievable, and I might even dare to utter the words, oh, but man, I'll tell you what, swear to this really did happen. And it's vanity. That's meaningless. That's emptiness. You're bringing God's name into something that's, that just doesn't belong. It's not supposed to be there. As if you're some kind of judge that can subpoena the Lord Almighty to come and testify on your behalf. Tell them it's true. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't swear with my name. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. That is enough for somebody who has integrity who walks in the way of the Lord, who doesn't compartmentalize their life as if like these are the Jesus parts of my life and these are not so much. But if Jesus becomes every part of our life, what we're saying is we always hold integrity. We always do what we say we're gonna do. When we make a promise, we keep it. That's what we wanna see is that the, that the people of God must be a promise-keeping people because the God we serve is a promise-keeping God. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's the beauty that we get to see. Your life can be more enriched if you are a person who keeps their promises. So much of our life, it's lived in the mundane, in these little moments of sharing stories with each other back and forth. Not making extravagant promises that we can't keep. Right? Sometimes we have to do this kind of things because we'll say to somebody, oh yeah, we can do this. And you can't do it. And you fail them. So now you've got to go and next time you make a promise, oh, but this time I swear to God I'll make it happen. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Do what is right. Speaking of letting our yes be yes and our no be no, third area, politics. Talk about a group of people who always overpromise and always underdeliver, no matter what side of the aisle that you're on, right? We always see that happening. They never let their yes be yes or their no be no. But this is something that I've seen a lot, a lot of in the last six years or so. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When it comes to political discourse on our Facebook newsfeed, our social media, family dinner, or whatever it might be, it seems rare that calmer heads prevail. There's yelling and fighting. There's a lot of anger that comes up in these moments. And even 
sometimes under things that are complex and confusing and we're trying to figure them out, we invoke the name of God to say, well, God's on my side. He's definitely not on your side. And that just ups the ante right there. You just told that person you don't think they're a Christian because they hold a different opinion than you. We have to be so careful when we bring the name of God to defend ourselves. We're invoking his name. We're bringing it into an area of life where sometimes, if we're just honest, I just don't know. Or sometimes, if we're just honest, we say, this is what my experience has taught me, and this is the way that I would lean on this particular issue and what might be happening that doesn't necessarily mean that we can say, but God has said X, Y, Z about this economic policy. God would vote no to student, you know, levies for schools. Like, I don't know what God would do for that. But, but we're quick to bring him in to these issues. It reminds me when I was a kid, me and my friend used to argue about who was better, the red or the green Power Ranger. And we would fight, and we had really complex and really good arguments, like the Red Power Ranger's name was Jason, and that starts with J. So he's clearly better, because my name is Josh, and it starts with J. Right? Or things like, but red is my favorite color, not green. And we would have these arguments, and we would go after each other, and I'd be like, you're right, the Green Power Ranger does have a pretty cool ponytail. Or, right? And we would go after each other. You know what never happened in the middle of these fights as kids about the Red and Green Power Ranger? You never happened... No parent ever came in at any point and said, listen, I'm settling this once and for all. It's the blue Power Ranger. It never, that never happened. Never did our parents come in the middle of these conversations and care, care at all what Power Ranger was better than the other one. You know what they cared about? They cared about their kids would love each other, honor them as parents, and then honor God. That's what they cared about. So when you get all up in arms about should people have debt relief through student loans, like, I don't know. Like, and I'm just going to be honest with you. That's the kind of thing that we want to invoke and say, no, 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 God says this. I, I think you're flirting with taking his name in vain. Because I just don't know that that one is that clear. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things in our world that we would, as Christians say, God is very clear on that. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Racism is sin and wrong. Uh, all life matters, and even the life of unborn children. Those things are easy. Those things aren't usually what most Christians are even arguing about. But the fact is, we let those things guide the way rather than the Bible. And when somebody has a difference of opinion about something else that's just hard or complicated or even in those things of what to actually do because it's really hard and it's really complicated and there aren't any easy answers. Our go-to is not only are you wrong or have a difference between with me, but you're wrong because God is on my side. And that's what it means to bring God's reputation into your opinion and say, God, let me tell you what you need to believe. And this is, this is what I'm trying to say is when we stand in kingdom come, I promise you, people are not going to be talking about what happened in American politics in like this small little blip of human history. They're just not. But we will be talking about long into glory. Will be, was the gospel of Jesus Christ enough to help us transcend confusing things in our lives and say, even though I disagree with you, I love you. Brother, I love you. Sister, we can still come to the Lord's table together. 
That's what we have to say. Can life be enriched if we are slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to anger? If we have a meekness to the implanted word of God. If we have an eternal mindset that says, you know what? These things are probably in the long run not going to be quite as important as we think we are. They won't be. God still sits on his throne. God still knows what's good and wise. He's not going to leave us. He's going to be with us the whole time, no matter what happens. His promise is to be the promise-keeping God. He's going to be with us the whole way. So there will be, I'm sure, many disagreements. If you want to ask me personally, I will tell you personally what my persuasions are, but I, I try, and I don't always do good at this myself, but I have really trying to grow and say, you know what? This is my opinion about this issue. I grew up in a rural community. I have this situation in my own life. I, my parents were this way. So it's okay. That's my opinion. That's where I'm at. And it's okay to say that. I'm not telling you to not have an opinion or to not care, to not vote. What I'm telling you is, Sometimes we just have to resolve to say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to do the best that I can. And in the meantime, I'm going to choose love over judgment when my brothers and sisters in Christ disagree with me. Our final thing, perhaps the most important thing that can help us and be enriched in our life as we don't bring the name of God into the world would be our prayers. We don't want to Take his name in vain when we pray. John 14, 13 through 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is not licensed to just ask for anything in the name of Jesus. Treat his name like it's some kind of spell, like new Mercedes, amen, in the name of Jesus. Where's my new Mercedes? Right? Like, I know that's an extreme example. We don't, no one in here would ever do that. But that's the reality. Like, that's not what we're saying. If we look at what we've learned so far this morning, what is a name? A name in the Bible is used as the reputation and the character of God. It recognizes this is who God is. And so when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, he's saying, whatever you ask, you would ask it in such a way that it aligns with the reputation and character of him. And that is what he is promising you will receive. You will receive anything that lines up with the character, reputation, and will of God. Whatever brings glory to God, the Father, the Son, his Spirit, that's what God is promising to answer in your prayer life when you pray in the name of Jesus. When we close out our prayers in the name of Jesus, and we say that phrase, what we are saying, what we should be saying in our heart is, I believe I have prayed in such a way that reflects the reputation, work, character, and will of God. And I'm saying, Jesus, will you answer and according to your reputation, according to the one who intercedes for me and on my behalf, hear this prayer? Take it to the Father? Because that's the prayer. That's, that's what we're told in Scripture, that Jesus now intercedes for us on our behalf when we pray. Because it's what Jesus has done, we pray in his name, not our own. We don't try to manipulate it 
or manipulate a situation to get what we want out of our prayer life. See, that's the difference between like, hey, if you've ever heard the, the name it and claim it kind of gospel. The name it and claim it treats the name of Jesus like it's a spell, like it's some kind of magic word. You're going to get that raise in, at, at work, and I'm going to pray in faith, and I'm going to say that, and in the name of Jesus, I'm going to name it and claim it. Amen. This healing, this cancer in your life, I'm going to cast it out of you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to hold power of this. You don't hold the power. He holds the power. He's the king. He's the one who's in charge of all these things. And he says, I will be glorified through hunger and I will be glorified through, through feast. He decides which way it goes. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are able to come humbly and ask for our needs and go before him. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying for a raise. When I was in sales, I used to, me and my bosses who were Christians, we used to pray over specific deals all the time. And we would ask God, God, will you bless this? Will you bless our situation? Because we wanted God to be a part of all of our life. We didn't want to compartmentalize him. We, we would ask for his blessing and his help. But that doesn't mean we sold everything. We didn't invoke his name in such a way, we humbled ourselves under the name of Jesus. We humbled it and said, Lord, you know that our company, we want to see it thrive so that we might make much of the name of Jesus in the world of art. You, you, you know, God, that we want to be successful so that we can put your name and your glory on display so that we can hire more people and help people find good jobs and labor. God, we're trying to, trying to bring your culture into this broken culture. We're trying to bring the gospel into the workplace. And Lord, to do that, you know, you know our needs. We got to sell some stuff because we don't sell things. This company is going to last very long. We're going to start up tech company. And we would pray like that. And sometimes we would close them. And sometimes we wouldn't. But God was always faithful and he always provided what we needed. The Lord was so good that, that during COVID, we lost a ton of accounts in the summer, a massive amount of accounts. And by God's sheer grace and beauty and glory, one person contacted us in California, reached out to us. The Lord was really kind, and he, and he let, us, let me be the, the salesperson to do this because of a really small thing that I had done a long time ago. I got to be the person who was there, and we sold it. We closed this deal, and it was what we needed to keep from laying anybody off. It covered our summer expenses. See, what I don't want to claim is that God never shows up or that we need to hedge our bets every time we pray and use his name as that way too. That, we can also take the name of Jesus in vain. Uh, and if it's your will, just in case if you don't do this so that nobody doesn't believe you in anymore, amen, right? We do that sometimes in our prayers too. We would go, we just humbly ask, God, we need you to provide for us. We just lost every summer account. Like, we don't know what we're going to do. And he provided. But I told you that story about my mom earlier when I began the sermon. But the reality is, is my mom died in 2015 from cancer. And we brought in the pastors of our church. And we put oil on her. And they prayed over her. And the cancer never went away. And we begged God, begged God to heal her. She never was healed. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. But man, she passed away, and Jesus had saved her, and she 
was an elementary school teacher and did special education, and she loved her families all the way to the bitter end, that when we had her funeral, we had to have it outside because in my small town, there was too many people for the venues that exist there, and their school brought all these, like, balloons, and everybody had, like, 500 balloons that they let up into the sky, and it was this really beautiful kind of thing, and I got to sit and share the gospel with all of these people as her son. I had to tell them the, the truth The cancer did not defeat her, that we are more than conquerors in Christ because, yes, he didn't heal her body here, but he will heal everybody who comes to know Jesus. We'll get a new and glorified body, and she'll be with him forever. That's the promise that we have. These temporal things that we pray for, they're just temporal things. But your life will be enriched if you understand that we, we go before God, we pray to the God who's the God of all eternity, and he may choose to allow you to suffer for his glory and his honor and his name's sake because he will not hold his own name in vain. And when he calls you into times of suffering and pain and difficulty, he is calling you to obey the third commandment, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, not cursing it, not, not questioning him, but being honest. Hurt, broken, but calling out to the God of the universe and saying, I know this is hard, but I know you're still good. That's what it looks like to obey the third command in your life. There's times I've done that well, and there's times I've done that horribly, horribly in my life. See, as I conclude this morning, the reality is I have to tell you, and I've already confessed it, I have failed in all of these areas. The law of God weighs over me, and I cannot pick up that law on my own. I have used the Lord's name in vain in my speech. And instead of bringing grace to those who hear me, I've been mean and vengeful. I've made promises and then failed to keep them. I've gotten so angry and I've said foolish things in the middle of silly, temporal, political discourse. Because I was quick to speak and quick to anger. I didn't hold true the word of God and looked like a fool because of it. And I've prayed to God in ways that are shameful, wanting him to just have my way or take away difficulty, change my situation instead of changing me. I've failed. If you're honest, you failed too. The law of God is so high and so perfect. The truth is none of us can come before him. But this is what the gospel says to you. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, people like me and people like you, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're going to transition now into our time of the Lord's Supper. This is a time where we look at the body of Jesus and we consider that it was broken for us on the cross. It's a time where we look at the blood of Jesus poured out for us on the cross. It's a time where we remember 
that we fail to uphold the law on our own. That we're simply not good enough and we'll never measure up on our own. But we also remember the glorious and wonderful truth that Jesus paid for our sin in his broken body and his shed blood. And that he rose victoriously from the grave. That if we believe on his name, we are given the right to be called children of God. And we're saved of our sins. And we're changed and we're made to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. And we grow and grow and grow and we bring honor and glory to the name of God. If you are not a Christian here this morning, we ask that you don't take the Lord's Supper. What I mean by that is if you do not believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can save you from sin, that Jesus' death, his resurrection, is all that you need to be saved from God's holy wrath. If you don't believe that, you are not what we would call a Christian. You're not what the Bible would call a Christian. We're so glad that you are here, and we hope that you continue to come. We hope that at this time that you would take this as a serious moment to reflect, to consider the law of God and how you don't live up to it, and that today might be the day of salvation, that you would submit yourself to Christ, that you would want to live a life that no longer takes his name in vain, but that honors and glorifies his name. But if you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take this because you would be taking the Lord's name in vain. His reputation and his character, his death, his resurrection, because you'd be saying you believe it, but you really don't. So we invite you here to be honest. And when it's time, you can just remain seated. No one's going to come pick on you. No one's going to point you out. But you can remain seated and know that you are welcome here. But if you're here, and you have been changed by the name of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. You've come to know him, and he's radically changed your heart and your life. You're like me, who just saw that I was a sinner before a holy God. But thanks be to God, he made a way that I could know him and love him through the cross of Jesus and through his resurrection. Then we invite you to come. We take two minutes to reflect before we come. There's a little timer that will be up on the screen. Um, There's a little prayer for you to read through if that is helpful to you, or you can just take the time to reflect on your own sin and repent and lift high the name of Jesus. And when that two-minute timer uh, ends, there'll be another change on the slides. And when that change happens in the slides,